Talking History on News Talk. Good evening and welcome. We're Talking History on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. In tonight's show, 1923 and why it was the year of Hitler's first victory and his first defeat. The Irish Templars and the charges levelled against these knights during the time of the Crusades, as well as a look at how the Templars helped make medieval Britain. And then to end the show, we'll find out about the attempts to hide the Tsar's sister, the favourite mistress of Charles II, and lots more besides as we explore 500 years of British history told through the palace at Hampton Court. Last week, we looked at the life, work and legacy of J.R.R. Tolkien and found out how a cult developed in his lifetime around the Lord of the Rings. And if you want to listen back to this or to any of our older shows, just go to the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud, our website newstalk.com or wherever you download your podcasts. We begin tonight's show with the forgotten crisis in 1923, the year of Hitler's attempted coup. 1923 was the year of Hitler's first victory and his first defeat. Fanning the flames of instability, anti-government and anti-Semitic sentiment, the Nazis' abortive yet pivotal putsch in a Munich beer hall failed when they were abandoned by their like-minded conservative allies. And the story is told in a brilliant new book by Mark Jones. It's called 1923, The Forgotten Crisis in the Year of Hitler's Coup. It's published in hardback by Basic Books. Uh, the author, as I say, Mark Jones. And Mark, uh, I think you were first on the show nine years ago. That's right, yeah. Thank you, Patrick. Um, I was just reminiscing coming back in that it was 2014 when I was first here. Um, and at that time, I was just finishing my uh, thesis, which became my first book, which is about Weimar Germany and the, the birth of the German Republic in the revolution of 1918-1919. And now this is the second one, the second big monograph, which has taken years to write on the year 1923. when I, And in the book, I wanted to tell the story of the background really to what I would describe as Hitler's breakthrough year. You know, at the end of 1922, Hitler has about 8,000 followers, members of the Nazi party, uh, just on the eve of the putsch, that number's increased to 50,000. And in that space of time, this growth is powered by radicalisation of politics, language. I wanted to show that the the stage in which Hitler rises in detail in a month-by-month basis. And your epilogue is fascinating in terms of the way, telling the story of how the events of 1923 are remembered and commemorated later, especially after 1933 when Hitler comes to power, because in those years, he, you know, if you were, in, if you were with him in 1923, you know, that was never forgotten. Um, that's that's right. Um, it's it's really Im- important to think about. You know, we're talking about the, the putsch. Uh, the putsch only lasts about twenty hours, and it's a spectacular failure. Um, Fourteen uh, of Hitler's followers are are killed um, in a shootout with police. Four police are killed, and one waiter who comes out of a restaurant who's caught in the crossfire is also is also killed. Um, and so, in no way is it really when it happens a hugely seismic event in. The f- what, what Eric Hobsbawm calls the age of extremes. It's later, it's a decade later when the Nazis come to power that we realise that that was the founding moment of something that would profoundly and deeply shape the, the 20th, 20th century. Um, at the end of 1923, German liberals, one of whom I quote at the, the end of the book, says, looking back at this year, you know, our descendants won't understand the hatred and chauvinism of our times. So the end of the year 1923 itself, uh, there's a great deal of optimism that German democracy has survived all of the the uh, uh, challenges that are thrown at it during the course of that that pre- the previous twelve months, unlike 1933 when when the when the republic collapses in 1923, faced with economic crisis, invasion, national humiliation, uh, German democracy survives, and it's really after 1933 that the event gets reinvented as being the birth of the of the Nazis. And what you know, in 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 uh, Hitler reenacts the putsch. They they march through the streets of Munich in 1935. They actually exhumed the bodies of the dead putschists and they're reburied in a spectacular ceremony that lasts you know, two, two days. It goes on through the night with flaming torches. A social democratic observer in the city of Munich you know, watches it and says, you know, uh, the, the average person says this is a bit over the top, but there's no doubt that there's a huge amount of support for, for, for the Nazis. People stood in, in the streets for hours just to watch the, the, the procession um, pass by. Uh, and so that's a challenge for a historian of this period because how do we write about the importance of Hitler's breakthrough year without over-exaggerating and without imposing the categories that the Nazis would like us to have, which is to see it as a really important event, when actually it's only one of a series of, of small 
a smaller uh, events in that crisis year itself. And that's the purpose of the book. Having said that, it's important to remember one of the leading putschists beside Hitler, who's actually killed, has a constitutional document in his pocket, which is the constitution that the leaders of the putschists would use if they actually had seized power. And that includes provision for mass murder, includes provision for the execution of any German who helps any Jew who is uh, found uh, uh, breaching the the, the new anti-Semitic laws which the regime will introduce. Okay, so they're very much planning for what later becomes the the Nazi regime. So it is the year of crisis and all these multiple crises in 1923. But maybe we might start just just a little bit before that with the assassination of Walter Rathenau uh, in 1922, because, again, he's an important figure. The assassination is significant. And then uh, in in post-1933, it's forbidden to commemorate or remember him. That's right. So Rathenau is, is an extraordinary individual. Um, I'm sure a lot of listeners to this program, uh, people will know the company AEG. Rathenau's father uh, founded that company um, and it brought the electric light bulb to Germany. It brought elect- electric um, technology. And Rathenau then was, you know, the son of an extremely successful father and he was an extremely successful figure in his own right. Um, um, uh, a very um, successful business figure who who left his career in business to take up a position in politics, uh, first as Minister for Reconstruction in 1921, then as German Foreign Minister. And there are two things about Rathenau that are really important, I think. The first one is in 1921, he tries to solve the problem of reparations, the problem of what will Germany pay to France for and, and Britain for uh, the cost of the First World War for reconstructing the size of the part of France that's been des- uh, destroyed by the war, an area of territory the size of the Netherlands. And Rathenau uh, tries to solve that problem through Franco-German cooperation, something called the Wiesbaden uh, Accords, which in another, you know, almost, I suppose in a way of putting it as, oh, they almost become the starting point for what becomes European integration. So one of the questions for historians of the 20th century as a whole is, why is it possible after the horrors of the Second World War that Western European countries can integrate, whereas after the first, it's not possible? And the the answer to that question involves saying, well, the ideas that lead to European integration in the 1950s are there. Rathenau is one of these people driving those ideas. And that's something I think people need to to remember about him. The other thing is he is a visionary. He is, uh, but he's also Jewish. And he's murdered by uh, a group, a right-wing group of um, proto-Nazis, we might call them, in the summer of 1922. And I want people to focus on that because the reaction to Rathenau's murder in the summer of 1922 shows the amount of uh, potential support for the democracy in Germany that was there at the time. There's a re-founding of the Republic. Um, perhaps as many as a million people come out into the streets of Berlin to protest, uh, to mourn Rathenau, but to protest against the actions of his killers. And that shows you the that there is a wider range of opinion in Weimar than that just, you know, anti-systematic uh, le- leading to, again, the, the rise of the Nazis. There is this this uh, potential groundswelling of pro-Republican feeling. And the question for historians is, where does it go? And, and that's there in the second half of 1922. And one of the reasons that it gets undermined, and there are never such great pro-democratic demonstrations in Weimar Germany again, one of the reasons for that is, are the crisis events of the year 1923. Yeah, let's talk about those crisis events because you have huge hyperinflation, you have, uh, which plunges so many into poverty, but you also have Germany, or you have France and Belgium uh, occupying uh, the economic heartlands of Germany. Uh, You have, you know, the issues over reparations. There seems to be all of these, you know, dominoes falling at the same time and they have huge consequences then for uh, the future of Weimar Germany. So each month, the crisis spirals that little bit more. And that's why I think that, that taking an approach to this year, uh, month by month, makes it, uh, it makes it easier to untangle those crises for us today, looking back at that, at that time, while we remember that if you lived through this, you lived in it as something of a, of a whirlwind. And the starting point is the 11th of January. Uh, because on the 11th of January, the French Prime Minister Raymond Poincaré uh, sends French soldiers into the Ruhr district to occupy the Ruhr to accompany a a, a group of um, mining experts. And they are there nominally to uh, secure reparations in kind, which France argued that Germany has not been paying. And France's goals radicalised from there to to being potentially, to being um, 
seizing the Ruhr and making the Ruhr a part of, of France, uh, you know, to, to, to annexing the Ruhr, which would have been a sensible strategy for French imperialists at that time. The Ruhr is Germany's heartland. It's an industrial powerhouse. It's a major coal-producing region in Germany. And it, taking it away from Germany would have fundamentally weakened uh, weakened Germany. Remember, the Treaty of Versailles has taken away the eastern coal-producing region in Germany in Silesia. And so taking the Ruhr would have been, uh, you know, would, would, have, would have really fundamentally weakened Germany's economic power at a time when Germany's military power is already gone. Remember, at this time, France is uh, economically not, not, not strong, but military the strongest power in, in Europe. Uh, so Poincaré uses a military solution to uh, an economic and political crisis, sending the soldiers in, and Germany cannot respond the way a state usually responds to invasion by uh, fighting back with its army because it doesn't have an army. So it responds by something called passive resistance. Passive resistance puts the workers of the Ruhr on strike and the German government chooses to print money to pay for the cost of that strike and to pay for the ensuing costs of the campaign of passive resistance. Initially, they think this is going to be something that lasts for weeks. It lasts until late September. France is suffering too as a result of the policy of passive passive resistance, but that is pushing the hyperinflation, the cause of hyperinflation. That's what makes the summer of 1923 in Germany the summer of zeros when, uh, you know, if you have dollar income, you're going to have a great time because you can cash in your dollars for billions of marks. Uh, Thomas Mann, the writer, uh, famous writer, Nobel Prize winner, he writes later about how, you know, he wrote an, an article, a series of articles for an American magazine and the dollars that he got from that American publication paid for his son's boarding school fees and allowed him to live. So people like that, people with foreign income and, and then ranging from like Thomas Mann to like businesses with foreign accounts, they're the winners of the hyperinflation. But the majority of people feel like they're losing. And so there's a great deal of anxiety, rivalry, uh, uh, suffering, starvation, f- food. Farmers won't sell food for worthless currency because if the currency is worth nothing in a few hours, there's no point in selling your goods, you hoard them. And so there's a food supply crisis. And by the summer, it's obvious that this crisis has to end. The then Chancellor Kuno, he wants out of the job, he's tired. He's n- manoeuvring himself out of the position and Gustav Stresemann is, is manoeuvring himself to replace him, which happens in August. And on the first cabinet meeting, Stresemann is aware we have to end passive resistance, whatever it costs. Stresemann frames it as a, as a nationalist decision. He says, you know, a real nationalist recognises when you're defeated and doesn't carry on until to make matters worse. But precisely in this point in time, this is where the international sphere comes back into this crisis. The British government intervene with a speech by British Foreign Secretary Lord Curzon, which basically says we're about to switch to supporting Germany. And that means Stresemann can't give up the policy of, of continuing to resist and he can't give up the policy of printing notes for August and September. And when we look at those events in detail, uh, you see how different in a way that time was in terms of international politics to today. The largest European economy is on the brink. It has no functioning currency. Uh, the British leaders issue this policy that we will we, we, we declare the occupation of the Ruhr to be illegal, which is something the Germans had said since the very start of the year. And thus opening a new possibility of new political alliances. And at that point in time, the British Prime Minister goes on holidays. And he goes on holidays to France. And while the German economy is sinking, uh, they're waiting for more news from London and, Fran- and Paris. Poincaré calls the British government's bluff. He recognises that what they've said in August is simply words, but he doesn't believe that they will fundamentally back it up. The pro-French lobby in London goes crazy when the, when the British Foreign Secretary says we actually think that uh, France is in the wrong here. And then on, on his way back from holidays, British Prime Minister Stanley Baldwin meets with Poincaré in Paris and they declare total unity between Britain and, and, and France. And that's the point then on the 26th of September when Stresemann says, we cannot delay any longer. We must end passive resistance. But a better, better functioning international uh, system at that time, including international organisations that would allow European countries to cooperate, and um, would have let made that brought that decision uh, to bear earlier in in, in August rather than, and when things are getting worse on a day by day basis every day counts and so that decision at the end of September to end passive resistance to end the printing of notes to launch a new currency that's the green light for what I call in the book and I think what's rightly to be called the now or never moments for all the extremists who want to destroy Weimar democracy because they recognise this crisis is at the peak now. And week by week, things are going to get better, which means the disgruntled, the angry, the unhappy. We mobilise them now, we achieve our goals, or we miss this crisis, miss this chance forever. And so for the Nazis, the model for them is Mussolini the previous year, who sees, sees 
seized or marched on Rome to seize power, excuse the terminology because he's actually handed power really, but uh, in the Nazi mind of 1923 he seized it and so they, they've been calling Hitler the German Mussolini since Mussolini has become Prime Minister and they want to follow in this moment and reenact and that's their, their pathway to the putsch from late September to early November. That happens at the same time as the communists in the state of Saxony and Thuringen, where the, which are left-wing states, strong strong states. I always nearly make the mistake of calling them red states, which will confuse American voters. But in Germany at the time, they are red states, they are left-wing states. The communists there think now is our chance to seize power. And in the West, separatist movements in the Rhineland, with the support of France, think now is our chance to break away and form republics uh, independent of Germany. So it's a state crisis, it's an ex- existential crisis. And... To everyone's great surprise, as the weeks go by, each of these threats to the state's existence are defeated. And at the end of it, the Democrats, the supporters of the liberal order, the supporters of the constitution, are the winners. And could Hitler's coup have succeeded? Because everything you're saying shows how angry people were, the economy had been destabilised, society was in crisis, you know, people were looking around for scapegoats, they were angry, Hitler and others were able to tap into that anger. How close did they come to succeeding? I think there's two ways of thinking about that question. And the first one is... Could they have succeeded on the streets of Munich with the forces that they mobilised on the 8th and 9th of November? And that question, we can't, you know, we, we can answer it in the first with a no because they didn't have the power to, to, to succeed in Munich. When it came to a firefight with the police, they actually lost quite quite quickly. As I said, it's a 20-hour event. Uh, the second question is what's going on behind the scenes and could they have succeeded had they got support from the Reichswehr, the German army? Had they got support from other conspiratorial factors in among the political leadership of the state of Bavaria? And I think in that sense, there's, uh, you, you know, they're, they're close behind the scenes to getting uh, m- more support for what they're considering to be the March on Berlin. And the, the key figure here is Gustav Ritter von Kahr, and Gustav Ritter von Kahr is uh, he's installed as the kind of the dictator of Bavaria to, to maintain order in Bavaria in in the autumn and to maintain order against threats from left and right and if von Kahr had sided with Hitler then there's a possibility that uh, the putsch may have ended in a German civil war we can't you know, fast forward enough to know how that civil war might have played out because the state of Prussia to the north the largest state in, in Weimar Germany is largely pro-democratic and in the democratic and social democratic forces there would probably have fought back against a march from the, from, from the south uh, led by conservative um, nationalists and fascists out to destroy the republic. And the, 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 the best way of answering the question is we know why that didn't happen. That clash never happened because people like von Kahr, even though they were rabid nationalists, even though they wanted the monarchies back and even though they hated the republic, they calculated... If we try this fight, we're going to lose. And so they step back, but their stepping back happens in the darkness. It happens in conspiratorial places. It happens in secret meetings. Hitler spent the year screaming, and it's very much the Hitler we know from Downfall at the end of the film where he's at the table screaming. That's the, that's the personality we have in 1923. He spent the year screaming, we're going to destroy this republic. They're all weaklings. They're, they're our eternal enemy. They're Jews. They're social democrats. They're not real men. We're going to go and beat them up. And when you scream like that at your followers for a whole year and the state's on its knees, you can't not try and seize power. And so that's the platform he puts himself on. And when he fails, it's a spectacular failure. He's extremely depressed and he spends, you know, one, uh, the weeks around Christmas in, de- in a state of depression, possibly suicidal, uh, in prison in Landesburg, uh, sorry, in, 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 in near Munich. And it's only the same process that is part of his leadership style for the rest of his career that brings him back. He blames other people for his defeat. He blames other people for his failures and he gets ready to go again. And when he's released from prison, you know, the dead of the putsch are on his mind in his first speech. He dedicates Mein Kampf to them and he learns to, to you know, pick himself up off, off the, the canvas of, of the floor and to get going again. He remobilizes himself and he takes gambles again. You see that same pattern of political leadership Uh, The gambler who blames others for every failure, who chooses a more radical decision after each defeat, that, that becomes his style of leadership from 1933 onwards.
Well, democracy being undermined, the rise of populism, attempted coups, you know, lots that uh, uh, readers in the present day uh, would be able to see certain uh, resonances here in this brilliant new book. It's called 1923, The Forgotten Crisis in the Year of Hitler's Coup, published in hardback by Basic Books. The author is Mark Jones. And Mark, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thank you, Patrick. I appreciate it. Thank you. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Welcome back to Talking History. The Knights Templar have an enduring reputation, but not one they would recognise. Originally established in the 12th century to protect pilgrims, the Order is remembered today for heresy, fanaticism and even Satanism. Well, in a bold new interpretation, Steve Tibble sets out to correct the record. And while doing so, he also discusses the role of the Templars in Ireland. The book is called Templars, The Knights Who Made Britain. It's published in hardback by Yale University Press. The author, as I say, Steve Tibble. And Steve, you're very welcome to the show tonight. Oh, thank you, Patrick. Very kind of you to have me. It's extraordinary when we think of the popular image of the Knights Templar and there's so much tied into conspiracy theories and, you know, all of these, you know, you know, mad ideas about uh, secret powers behind the throne and all of that, that it's very interesting to go back to the actual historical reality and look at it as historians based on the evidence. Absolutely, you're absolutely right. It, um, I think it always reminds me of the... Uh the current conspiracies about Shakespeare, you know, who, who wrote Shakespeare? Well, you know, to me, obviously, Shakespeare wrote Shakespeare. It, and the bigger question is, why would anybody even ask that question? Um, and it says, it says more about us and our need for conspiracies and perhaps the need to identify a higher power in, in our lives. But the, the Templars in particular are, um, I believe, ter- terrible victims of, of an obvious misjustice uh, in, in terms of the way they've been treated, in terms of their reputation, and the way they were closed down, they, um, they you know, there are a group of individuals, so no, nobody is truly innocent of, of everything. But as a group, uh, it's a, a travesty. And if you look at the, the, the accusations that were thrown against them, they're, they're all risible, really. Uh, and hopefully we'll talk about that further in a minute. But the, to me, it's, um, it's strange that any of them have got any credence, really. So why exactly were, so maybe tell us who were the Templars, why were they established and what role did they have? Because it wasn't just a simple, straightforward role. They were actually involved in domestic policy, royal strategy, financial structures. They actually had had quite different roles than, you know, just the traditional going off to fight in the Crusades one. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And to me, that's the, the wonderful thing about the Templars. They the, the book I've written effectively has became a little bit of a love letter. Not not that I think we'd agree with everything they did, but just seeing what a small group of highly committed, highly focused people can do is is incredibly impressive. And as, as you rightly say there, they did effectively two different sets of tasks incredibly well. In, in the Holy Land, they were Christendom's most effective warriors they were an elite force they were relatively small numbers but they were really at the front of every charge they were the guys that you wanted you know fighting in the front ranks um hugely committed hugely brave but but in western europe and and say taking the case of of ireland and britain uh, and england and and scotland it's it's a very different role but again it's a very modern very focused role you find them acting as lobbyists as uh, investment bankers logistics experts auditors, they, they do all the kind of things that, um, that a small group of highly focused people can do so well. And it's, it's, it's a strange to me, a strange balance of, of modern and, and yet supremely medieval warfare that, that sets them apart. And uh, the, the reason they had these two very different strands, if you think about it, is they had a very, very clear strategy, and it was a central strategy of helping to defend the, the Holy Land. Which obviously is a very difficult. It's very difficult for a medieval society to defend a place that's so far from home, and the, the Holy Land being on the very frontiers of Christendom is, was obviously very difficult to defend after the First Crusade recovered it. Um, and the Templars, very cleverly, as as a, as a papal order, decided that they were going to do this in two ways. Um, firstly, they were going to do the military side, so they would try and build castles become a, effectively a bit of a, a professional army out there. But they, they realized they also needed help from the West. So they had brothers in the West who were 
lobbying Western governments like, um, say, the Scottish government or the English government to, to go out and uh, go on crusade or to give money to the crusading movement. And they had estates in, in all over the British Isles, all over Western Europe, where they could ex- exploit for money and then send that money to the, to the East. So they were, they were very good at, um, and highly focused in terms of their strategy, but combining these two very different arms of what, what they were capable of doing. And it is interesting to think of the Templars in Ireland. And you, though, explain that it's perhaps not correct to draw a distinction between English Templars and Irish Templars, that they wouldn't have seen those kind of distinctions existing in a nationalistic kind of way. Yeah, I think there's, you're absolutely right. I think there's a real danger that we, we look at the past from where we are now and we, we extrapolate too closely. Whereas in, I, I'm, I'm not convinced the Templars would have seen themselves like that at all. The, the, you know, the danger is that, that you can see the Templars going out there at the behest of an English king. So somehow it looks like English oppression or uh, colonialism or whatever. Whereas, in fact, the Templars were, were primarily French-speaking people of Norman heritage, uh, working for Norman heritage kings and nobility who were already uh, controlling a lot of Ireland, England, Scotland and so on. So um, even even when the order was closed down in the early 14th century, the vast majority of the guys were speaking French. I, I don't I don't quite see it being as nationalistic as we'd like it to be. They they did very similar things in Ireland to what they did in say Northumbria or um, you know setting up new towns or lobbying in England. The, the other thing to bear in mind is um, that they are a papal order. So although they're working, they're trying to embed themselves in different administrations in the British Isles, but but ultimately they work for the papacy. So what we have are a bunch of French-speaking people of Norman heritage working for an international organization who primarily speaks Italian. So so to suggest that these people are, uh, you know, in some way Irish Templars or English Templars or Scottish Templars, I think is kind of missing the point. I don't think they thought of themselves like that. And that's certainly not how they behaved. Now, in the year 1308, some, you know, quite hilarious charges were brought against the Irish Templars. And there was, a, I think, an investigation a year later. And But some of the charges, I was just reviewing it in the book, like some of them were absolutely ridiculous. Like they weren't paying attention at mass or that they were, um, you know, they weren't doing things properly, uh, you know, in a religious way. Like there was only, I think, a, 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 a small number of cases where someone was accused of fraud and theft and so on. But most of them were like very minor infractions of some very tricky, you know, things to do with mass or church observance or something. Yes, absolutely. And, and you, you picked up on exactly the right point there. The, the, at that point, the Inquisition were clutching at straws, you know, really scraping the barrel. In, in France, the Templars had been accused of completely absurd things of, you know, being Satanists, uh, urinating on the cross, uh, trampling on, on the crucifix, um, worshipping devils. Um, and under torture, a lot of the guys had died rather than perjure themselves, but but some of them had confessed, because I think the key thing is that under torture, uh, people will say whatever you force them to say. In 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 the British Isles, that didn't happen. So the, so the Irish Templars weren't tortured. And when they, when they were faced with absurd accusations like that, they just said, I have no idea what you're talking about. You know, I can't believe you're asking these crazy questions. And uh, and and it, so the judicial process ran into a brick wall. The only thing um, that the inquisitors could do was to find normally a few um, sort of disgruntled uh, monks from other orders who perhaps been felt that they'd been let down in some petty dispute, and they got these guys to come forward and say the most trivial things. I mean, it really is clutching its jaws. As you, as you say, like not paying attention at mass, not looking at the host in a, in a sufficiently focused way. Um, t- trivial, trivial things. And I th- you see that throughout the whole process of the, the trial of the Irish Templars. Uh, nobody really takes it that seriously. It, it runs on for years and years because there's no evidence. And nobody really wants the brothers to be badly treated. I think after a certain time, people just want it all to go away and just want to find a way to close down the process without without the horrors of, of the process that happened in France, where, where um, many, many of the brothers were, were tortured to death and then all burnt. So what was the real reason why they were suppressed then? Why did the Pope want to get rid of them? And why was there that decision in France and in Britain just that the Templar, the day of the Templars was over? 
Well, yeah, in a sense that what you said at the end there is the answer. And the day of the temperance was was over, and however much you liked them, um, you can see it was. They were effectively redundant because they'd been set up to defend the Crusader states and the Holy Land, and they'd, they'd helped to do that very well for, for nearly 200 years. But, but the Crusader states had collapsed. Uh, the last big city fell in 1291. So, that, so in a sense, the Templars, however brave they'd been, had failed. They didn't, their, their promise as a brand, their brand promise was that they would save the Holy Land and they'd failed to do that. So in a sense, they were redundant. Once they'd become redundant, um, it was really the French government that, that closed them down. It wasn't the papacy. The, the French government had a, a track record of, of trying to find vulnerable institutions and then um, basically taking their money. Um, they'd, they'd recently rounded up the, the Jewish community in France and confiscated their money. They'd, they'd taken money from the, uh, the Lombard bankers and then expelled them. And the King of France, uh, King Philip, was just uh, he was possibly possibly uh, believing that they were guilty, but even more so, he really needed money. So, so that I, th I think the, the Templars were vulnerable because they were redundant, and then the King of France um, needed money, so they just piled in any amount of absurd accusations. It's a bit, it's a bit like um, Goebbels, you know. If you if you if you tell a big lie often enough, some of it will stick, and there is this whole thing about throwing mud. And, and again, you know, even now, um, hundreds of years later, there's still this huge, huge, um, massive, crazy, crazy accusations going around the internet about the Templars, none, none of which have, as far as I can see, any, any basis in truth at all. And why are the modern conspiracy theories so popular? You know, whether it's things to do with uh, uh, a renegade Templars, the Holy Grail, you know, uh, in Scotland, uh, this idea that there was uh, some invincible Templars who, who helped turn the tide at Bannockburn and win it for Robert the Bruce. And, you know, that, there, that there's this secret history of the Templars which continued long after their suppression. Yeah, the, well, the, I think there's a boring answer and, a, and an exciting answer. And the, 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 I guess the exciting answer is that they were accused of so many weird things. And, uh, you know, in the absence of, ta you know, tabloid newspapers, it's a very tabloid story. You, you almost couldn't make it up, uh, you know, of a, of, a, of a profoundly religious band who were super brave and focused and yet somehow were secret and satanic and, and so on. So these, these false charges were... Uh, given some kind of credence, they were given oxygen in the Middle Ages, and that's kind of reverberated. I think the the boring answer, which is which is just as true and and goes alongside it, is that the the, the archives of the Templars disappeared just through the um, because the, because the order failed to ex you know didn't exist and was closed down. Their archives disappeared, and so. We know that they were great lawyers. We know that they had a huge archive that they'd taken a lot of care of. And, you know, you, you would have expected if, if they really were doing all these things, there would be receipts. You know, there'd be, oh, yes, a receipt for the Holy Grail or, uh, you know, some kind of invoice for buying uh, satanic heads or whatever. But actually, of course, there isn't anything. So it's, it's effectively a blank page. I, I spent many of my early years doing my PhD pretty much on the Hospitallers. And I went through the Hospitallers archives, which are, one would imagine would be incredibly similar to the Templars. And they're so dull. You, you don't find big conspiracy theories about the Templars because we know a lot of evidence about what they actually got up to. And it's really tedious. You know, there, there, it's a lot of land disputes. It's a lot of arguments about who's delivering the food and, and so on. Where, and the Templar equivalent of that disappeared. So I think that it's the magic combination of uh, a lot of false but very lurid um, accusations being in circulation, coupled with the fact that there's no evidence uh, to disprove them because the, you know, the, the Templars archives just don't exist anymore. So finally then, how do you think we should remember the Templars? How should we remember their, their role and involvement in Ireland, in Britain, and again, further afield? I, th I think overwhelmingly we should be, be thinking of them with respect for what they did, almost as an organisation. I think they were very... Uh, very committed, very focused, and as a, as a relatively small group of people that achieved wonderful things. They were the military elite of Europe, uh, even though, again, they only had a few hundred cavalry out in, in the Middle East. They were proto-professionals in medieval Europe, 
you know, running very sophisticated logistics and banking operations, agriculture and, and so on. These, for people who had very little resources, um, they had a very clear strategy and achieved an awful lot. And I, I think whether or not you agree with what they were trying to achieve, I think there's a beauty and a simplicity to their strategy and to the commitment they had and, and to, to look at what a small group of people can, can accomplish. Uh, is to me is a beautiful thing. Well, the book is called Templars, the Knights. Well, the book is called Templars, the Knights Who Made Britain. It's published in hardback by Yale University Press. And the author, Steve Tibble. And Steve, thanks so much for joining us tonight to tell us this extraordinary story. Thank you, Patrick. I really enjoyed it. We'll take a quick break now. But when we come back, we'll be exploring 500 years of British history told through the palace at Hampton Court. So stay with us here on News Talk. Welcome back. We're talking history. For centuries, Hampton Court in London has been a place of power, scandal and intrigue, a stage for events that shaped the British nation. And a new book raises the curtain on 500 years of British history with royals, politicians, criminals and geniuses all playing their parts. Philippa Gregory has said that if a house could gossip, then this is the book that Hampton Court would whisper. The book is called The Palace. From the Tudors to the Windsors, 500 Years of Royal History at Hampton Court. It's published in hardback by William Collins. The author is Gareth Russell. And Gareth, you're very welcome to the show tonight. Thanks so much for having me, Patrick. I really appreciate it. So tell us about Hampton Court, where it's situated, why it was built and the role that it served over that past 500 years. Yeah, it's, it's well, where it is, it uh, depends just where you uh, situate central London, but uh, depending on how picky you are, it's 12, 15 or 19 miles outside of central London. It's on the border, county border of Middlesex and Surrey. So it's it's a country palace. It, it functioned a little bit in its day the way Windsor Castle would for the British royal family today. It's a very prominent country seat for them, but its antecedents go right back way, way before it became a royal property. Excavations in the 16th century established it was already ancient and there were coins discovered there from the era of Roman Britain from the reign of the Emperor Vespasian so there was a villa there in ancient times it partly that's because it's right on the bend of the river and it's also in very fertile agricultural uh, land which obviously in the Middle Ages increased its property value significantly for those uh, aware of the legend of Lady Godiva, who rode naked, according to the, to the story, through the streets of Coventry, it was owned by her family, actually, before the Norman Conquest. And then it was, as much of the land from the Anglo-Saxon aristocracy was, it was given to the Norman knights, in this case, the saint Valery family, who were distantly related to William the Conqueror. And the saint Valerys became prominent crusaders. And when one of them, Bernard, was in Jerusalem, on the Third Crusade, he encountered that very uh, unique medieval hybrid of warrior monks in the form of the Orders of the Knights Hospitaller of St. John. And he was so impressed by them that he did what a lot of aristocrats did and bequeathed them land. And he gave these warrior monks land that was Hampton. And they turned it into a manner, a sort of theological Airbnb is how I would describe what they did with Hampton Court. So they set up a manner where well-heeled guests would stay as they used the river to travel between royal palaces in the Middle Ages. And then when um, the royals relocate some of their palaces, it falls out of favour. So they start renting it as a kind of weekend house or summer house to the great and the good. And that is how it eventually comes to the royal family's notice. Uh, Henry VII's Lord Chamberlain, the man in charge of running his court, Sir Giles Daubeny, rents the manor in 1495. And, it's, and he's such a prominent individual that the monks give him an unusual lease whereby he can transform the manor as much as he wants. And so the, the earliest surviving bit of the palace today, which is the kitchens, which I always recommend anyone to visit, they are built by Daubeny. When Daubeny dies, it's, it's become a very fashionable spot and Henry VIII's chief minister, Cardinal Wolsey, takes it over and really gets the same lease as Daubeny did and transforms it into a palace. And when Wolsey falls from favour in 1529, Henry VIII helps himself to it. And then, of course, with the dissolution of the monastic orders and the break with the Roman Catholic Church, the church property becomes uh, up for grabs and Hampton Court becomes part of the royal property portfolio. So that's really how it comes into 
being a working royal palace. And then over the, the years, successive royals add to it. There's a Baroque wing to it now that was um, that replaced some of the Tudor private apartments. William III built that in the aftermath of the Battle of the Boyne as a sort of riposte to Versailles. And it continues to be used right the way through until George III becomes king in 1760 and he hated it and decided to turn it into a... Um, compound really they divide the apartments into like sort of self-contained flats is the best way to describe it called the grace and favor system and they start to give it to former royal staff or maybe bishops widows who when their their husbands died find they were in debt so it becomes this slightly eccentric blue-blooded compound in the victorian era and then it becomes the tourist attraction we know today so that's sort of in brief a potted history of how it comes to be as a palace and then such a prominent part of history and you have a wonderful way of telling the story over the 500 years. It's like reading a, a 500 year version of The Crown because, you know, Queen Elizabeth <laughs> II and Philip, even Diana pop in in the, in the introduction and then you go back in time. But what you do is you kind of take us through a, a particular room or feature or garden and tell us that history for that part of it. And so we're kind of almost getting to know the history of the building and the history of the period almost brick by brick. Thanks. I mean, I really appreciate that. It was uh, it, part of it with, of the decision to tell the story that way. Patrick was honestly just making it manageable in the sense that there is so much that happened here. I mean, it's just an incredible amount of history that there had to be a structure imposed. And so what I did was I sort of picked a different person, different decade and a different room to try and tell a broader story going through that. And yeah, it does. It starts with Elizabeth II's coronation ball, which when I started research for this, I did not realise that it continued to have a stronger royal link into the 20th century. You're sort of told generally that it stops in 1760. But uh, a coronation ball was hosted for Elizabeth II there in 1953, and that's where we, I started the book and then looked back to the Tudors and build back to that moment in the 50s. And yeah, it was it, it, part of the, um, the joy, I would say, of writing it was getting to pick the different people. There were a few people I had to leave out just for sort of brevity's sake, and sometimes just because something's interesting doesn't mean it necessarily fits uh, the story you're trying to tell. But it was a, it was a real pleasure to, to, to create that arc for it. And a lot of the times, you know, I go back to Hampton Court a lot and you walk into your room and it means something slightly different, you know, having looked at it from, from, a, from a different person's perspective. So tell us about some of the stories then and some of the characters because uh, Anne Boleyn features very strongly as indeed does her daughter, the future Queen Elizabeth I. So tell us about their connections with the palace. Yeah, Anne was Anne was one of the, the, the exciting parts to write, which sounds, I'm, I'm sure some listeners will roll their eyes as they're entirely, entirely justified to do. It is not as if Anne Boleyn could claim to be an under-covered, an under-reported historical figure. She... She stands under the historical spotlight, absolutely. But what was interesting about looking at her from through the prism, excuse me, of Hampton Court is you get to see, or I got to focus on, a very specific moment in her life. So it's not the whole history of Anne Boleyn. It's that she, what did she look like? What were her plans? What was her life when she arrives at Hampton Court for the first time as queen in the week after her coronation in 1533? And Sometimes with the tragedy and scandal, scandal, excuse me, of her eventual downfall, we that overshadows the rest of her personality. So it was very exciting to show her as this great architectural patron. She had a real eye for detail and art. And it's to Anne Boleyn that we owe the size of Hampton Court. She was the one who planned really the third wing of it that became the Queen's apartments. And it was exciting it was very exciting to stress the Butler connection, the, the, the connection to the Irish Earls of Ormond, because if anyone's sort of interested in the Irish aristocracy, I, I would say go to Hampton Court and look up in the Great Hall. Now, you'll have to strain or maybe bring binoculars, but if you see in the brown wood painted black falcons, they were painted black after she was executed to hide them. 
but they contained the heraldry of Anne's Irish family and the butlers were a big part of it as well. So I did a lot of research into some of the butler homes at Kilkenny and Carrick and Sur and see, to see, you know, were there bits that she borrowed from there as well? Her grandmother was a butler and there were. She took a lot from Ireland, a lot from France where she'd been educated and she really mixed them together to create what she hoped would be a very chic and cutting edge but also cultural melting pot for the architecture of Hampton Court. So I enjoyed that. It was a different side to Anne Boleyn to look at for chapter three. And what about for Elizabeth I then because uh, she had a tricky uh, time at Hampton Court. She, Patrick, she had a far less enjoyable time than her mother's um, redecoration spree. So Elizabeth very nearly died at Hampton Court in 1562. She She caught smallpox whether she caught it there or we don't know, but certainly this was October 1562. So one of the things that tends to happen in the early modern period is that you ask, you fear the summer months in the cities because that's when the plague comes back with an annual vengeance. And there seems to have been a general relaxing of the tensions by October. So I think everyone thought they were fine and that they escaped the recent epidemic. But Elizabeth falls very ill at Hampton Court. In fact, she nearly dies and she's only been queen for four years by this stage. It's nine, It's um, she's 29. And it was, you can still go to this Privy Council chamber in Hampton Court where the Privy Council gather and try to think, what on earth are we going to do with the succession if she dies? Because obviously Elizabeth is, um, she's unmarried, she's childless and her father's, uh, colourful private life meant that there was a lot of contested claimants to the throne. So it was it was both a personal panic of was Elizabeth going to make it and a political crisis brewing at the other end of the corridor about what were they going to do? Who should they should they bring her cousin Catherine Grey to Hampton Court to have her sort of be queen in waiting, or should they just abandon female monarchy altogether and pick a very very distant cousin, the Earl of Hastings, or excuse me, the Earl of Huntington, and bring him? to Hampton Court. So that's part of what makes Hampton Court so special from a historical perspective, is that you really do see, particularly in the uh, Tudor and Stuart periods, you see a, cru- a crucible or a merging together of the personal with the political. There's often something personally fascinating happening at the same time as it has massive political ramifications just because of of the nature of how monarchy and politics functioned at the time. Well, let's lower the tone then perhaps a little <laughs> bit by by moving on a little bit to Charles II sure. and uh, some of the exploits that he got into at, up to at Hampton because uh, mistresses feature quite prominently in the book and certainly yeah. they feature whenever Charles II is being discussed. They they certainly do, and and in the section on the Stuarts, I have to say it was um, it was like snakes and ladders, or you know, sort of a roller coaster. One minute you would you would have a very serious, godly, sometimes quite painful chapter, and then you would be launched into a, ta- a tone that was completely different. It was like like Las Vegas with coronets, I think, and. Charles II certainly has a rambunctious private life, and he comes right after the chapter in Oliver Cromwell. So it really goes from sort of very dark into into this um, sort of slight mania to do with um, to do with Charles II. And he, I focused on one particular mistress, Patrick. I focused on um, Barbara Villiers, Countess of Castleman, who Charles gave a wing to at Hampton Court. And Barbara is one of those figures. I think a lot of historians and historical readers will understand what I mean when I say sometimes when someone has a dire historical reputation, you go into it and you think, do you know what, the more I research, I'm sure I will find a nuanced different side to the personality and that is not there with Barbara Villiers. She was a horror of a person which made her great fun to write about. But all, I mean, Barbara really was the dominant mistress. She was very beautiful but um, cruel and very selfish. But She also seems to have been the first person to write a letter in English suggesting a threesome. She she was. That is just one of Barbara's many claims to fame. Uh, yeah, Barbara Barbara wrote a letter. This actually was interestingly before the restoration of the monarchy. So this is during the, the age of the sort of the Cromwellian or the Puritan Republic. And the the best way I could characterize this without being, I hope, too re- not too reductive, is um if you sometimes the children of very strict parents 
are the ones who behave the worst. And in Puritan London, when people choose to behave with abandon, they really go for it. So yeah, Barbara in the 1650s wrote a letter to her then, to her, well, her um, on-again, off-again lover, Lord Chesterfield, who was with the same age, like her, he came from a, a, a family who backed the wrong side in the Civil War. And Barbara sends a letter saying, my friend and I are in bed and contriving how to um, get your company here this afternoon. And I think that's pretty, it's pretty clear what she's trying to organise. She also, you know, she she has a string, of, she she kind of pushes back a bit against that double standard of only the king being allowed to to have multiple lovers. Her lovers include a circus acrobat, uh, um, a... Uh, the future um, Duke of Marlborough, John Churchill. There's um, a famous jewel, a duelist, Harry German. There's an actor from the London stage, and there's also, of course, the other mistresses that she does that she views as a threat. And um, there's Hortense Mancini, who's at Hampton Court. Hortense dresses sometimes as a man, sometimes as a woman. She um, escaped her husband disguised as a highwayman. There's um, Nell Gwyn. Who loved, who really did come from from genuine poverty and worked herself up as a comedic actress, caught the king's attention, and was very, very cheerful. You know, she 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 once sent a rival for the king's affections a box of candy sweets, I suppose, to say there was no hard feelings. Unfortunately, she laced them with a vigorous laxative, so that took care of, of the of the rival, and all this is playing out at Hampton Court, and right in the centre is. Uh, poor Queen Catherine of Braganza, Charles's Portuguese wife, who finds Barbara so unbelievably objectionable, not just for her position, but also for her personality, that at one point she gets so angry at her being anywhere near her that she suffers a nosebleed. So that that um, that chapter, The Countess of Castlemaine's Quarters, that, I have to say, was an absolute riot to write. And it was one of those things I kept finding, these sort of ditties and letters, very explicit letters from Charles II's courtiers. I just thought, this is a sort of glorious carnival of bad behaviour. So yeah, I, I loved writing the Barbara Castlemaine chapter. Uh, well, definitely more fascinating stories like this in the book. It's like reading 500 years of, of royal history like The Crown and I think uh, uh, lots for our listeners to enjoy there. The book is called The Palace from the Tudors to the Windsors 500 Years of Royal History at Hampton Court. It's published in hardback by William Collins. The author is Gareth Russell. And Gareth, thanks so much for joining us. Nothing but a pleasure. Thank you, Patrick. Well, that does bring us to the end of another edition of Talking History. My thanks to Alex Russo, who produced the show this week, my series producer, Marisa Sullivan, and to Peter Malloy on sound. We've got more debate and discussion next week, so hope you can join us then. We've been Talking History. Good night. Talking History with Patrick Gagan, Sunday evening at 7 on News Talk.